Good morning and greetings in our Savior's precious name. I'd like to continue my uh, series of messages, Seven Important Marks in Time. Just a bit of review, we looked at creation. And I said that, that our understanding of creation is the key, holds the key to a healthy Christian experience. And secondly, we looked at the corruption or the fall of man and the conflict that took place. And the, the message that I wanted you to take home from that was that life is too big for you and I to handle in our own strength. We need uh, a power outside of ourselves to be successful in serving the Lord. And this morning I want to look at the uh, catastrophe of the flood. And that takes us to Genesis chapter 6. I believe these seven important marks in time are preserved for us in the Holy Scripture to give us, to aid us in serving the Lord. God in His infinite wisdom, I believe, saw fit to see that these are recorded for our spiritual well-being. I did find it very interesting um, in Genesis chapter 6, and I want to read uh, just a few of the verses. I won't read the entire setting. It's probably one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and we've seen Art pictures depicting that scene and our imagination can run away with us. Um, I don't know what it was like, but the Bible does give us some clear uh, pictures of what it could have looked like. And uh, enough of details that we can, can learn some lessons from it. And that's ultimately where I want to look up. I wanna, uh, where I want to end up, I want to look at some of the facts uh, that we have recorded in the scripture, and then I want to look at some of the lessons that uh, we can learn from this experience. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they choose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the, in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to stop reading there. could uh, very well read the entire uh, passage all the way up through chapter 9, I believe it is, where a lot of it's recorded. One of the things that stood out to me, uh, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And just to give a connection between Noah's experience and our Sunday school lesson, the last title of our Sunday, last portion of our Sunday school lesson was entitled, Let Us Have Grace. And so how important is grace? Uh, if you look at it in Noah's experience here, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then we were talking this morning about, as we concluded in the last portion of the Sunday school uh, lesson, that we need to be... Uh, it says, let us have grace. We need to be possessors of grace. We need to be exhibitors of grace in our relationship uh, with one another and with the Lord. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's giving us that which we uh, do not deserve. Webster says a catastrophe 
This is Webster's de definition. I found it interesting. He says, a widespread, a widespread disasters event, a sudden violent disturbance, especially of the Earth's surface. And this is an, this is an experience, this is an event that certainly impacted the world that God created as no other event previously or following. The lesson I want you to take home this morning in this uh, Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, I'll be picking some verses out of different of the chapters here and looking at them, but the lesson I want you to take home is that there is accountability to God, to our Creator, by the way we live our lives. And that's very clearly uh, projected here in these verses that God preserved for us. You and I and every human being who have come to the age of reason and understanding and having knowledge of God's Word need to acknowledge our accountability to God for our sins and ask for forgiveness and repentance and confess or face the consequences of, of that lifestyle. Our choices and our decisions face consequences, judgment for those sins. First of all, looking at some of the facts of, of the experience here, uh, giving, looking at the background here, and one of the questions I asked myself was, okay, what was the world like uh, up to this point? And uh, we see here in verse 1, it tells us that man began to multiply on the face of the earth. And uh, what, you know, one of the things the media today has, has uh, learned is to uh, captivate their audience by, by headlines. And, uh, you know, we, we see the news flashes and it's, it's this terrible, this many dead, this many destroyed. And maybe that's why I was thinking in that realm. I started thinking, okay, well, I wonder how many people actually perished in the flood. The Bible doesn't directly give us a number. The safest biblical answer I can give you is that everybody perished but eight souls. Now that doesn't tell us how many people, what the population of the world was. And I was a little bit, I was a little bit surprised as I researched that out. I don't, anybody ever researched out what the population of the world may have been pre-flood? Anybody ever searched that out? Well, I'm like Dennis. I don't understand algebra at all. But I, in, my, in my research, there was some scholar had come up with an algebra equation, and uh, it, it sounded reasonable for not understanding algebra, but he came up with a 10 trillion figure. <laughs> and I'm just throwing that out because that's speculation. I, uh, that's merely speculation. But I always, in my mind, I thought, well, you know, the population of the world wouldn't have been near, you know, we're what, 7 billion? Are we, do we reach 7 billion? Population of the world? Six something, I think, maybe. Maybe almost seven. Uh, they're talking ten trillion. Well, I, I'm not going to argue for that, but uh, I was a little bit surprised when I, I researched that out. And there was different sources seemed to think that the population of the world was quite, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they had to calculate it out the lifespan and uh, the multiple wives, and there was quite a few had, you know, 77 children or over 100 children. You know, and that starts stacking up pretty fast. But uh, anyway, I'm just throwing that out for uh, the Bible does say man began to multiply on the face of the earth. And when man, began to when man began to multiply, so did his iniquity and his sin, and he forgot God. Looking at some of the facts here of the background, we notice in verse 2 of chapter 6 here, there was a blurring, uh, a mixing and a blurring of the good and the evil. And I need to, we need to be reminded, I believe, that 
Good never gets better when it's compromised with something of lesser quality. Christianity, God's values will never be enhanced by blending them together. And the world would have us to think that it, it can, but it doesn't work that way. Good never gets better when it is compromised or, or, or blended together with something of lesser quality. Truth, the truth of God's word never gets blended, never gets better when it's compromised with anything less than what we have written here in, in black and white. And uh, today the world continues to to propagate that theory that it's we need to our times have changed. We need to be willing to adopt new doctrine, and uh, of course we know that's error. Another fact, notice in verse 4 and 5, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And it talks about giant and it says they were become mighty men which are, were of old, men of renown. And uh, in, it mentions, uh, I believe what it's telling us here that uh, these people were, were held up as, as heroes. And it says they were men of renown. They were uh, accepted in, uh, in their culture. They were accepted in this time frame. Uh, embracing that which was less than the truth. And uh, their contemporaries accepted them and, and recognized them as uh, one of the other commentators or translations, I think, used the, the idea of hero. And we see that in our culture today. And that's, I think, why one of the purposes God preserved this mark in history for us because it tells us in the New Testament, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be uh, in the coming of the Son of Man. And uh, so we, these lessons are here for us to learn. In our world, all, our culture today holds up heroes, uh, those that are less than, than uh, what God would have them to be. We, mankind, viewed them as heroes, but God viewed them rather as sinners that were ripe for judgment. And it grieved God that he had created man. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, in verse 5, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. This wasn't just a, a, a failure to live up to the truth of God's word by, by, uh, by uh, what's the word I want? Uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lifestyle. It was not something that they slipped in. But it was a lifestyle. They had made decisions and choices that had placed them in direct conflict with God. And God viewed it as wickedness. And it was... It was ingrained in their inner being. God uses the idea of their thoughts, their thoughts and the intent of their heart, their very being. Uh, it was very deeply ingrained. This lifestyle was very deeply ingrained in their character. Backing up to verse 3, I thought verse 3 was kind of an interesting verse. Lord said, uh, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. It seems like a verse that's kind of isolated. Um, what exactly was God saying here? Why and when does God's spirit strive with man? Uh, well, when man sins and does wrong, God has, has a way of, of working through us, through the, uh, using his spirit to convict us through our conscience. Uh, when man sins and does wrong, God who is righteous and sinless desires the same from us. God desires us to uh, be righteous and sinless. Uh, I thought of the New Testament uh, expression where it says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Uh, and he mentions there, he says, I think God realizes for that he also is flesh. We still have that flesh to deal with. Uh, we are flesh. But yet 
we have we need to have the Spirit of God dictating our lifestyle. And we talked about that in the Sunday school lesson, I believe, as we work together uh, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. That Spirit needs to be the predominant uh, factor in our relationships, in our working together, and in our establishing our goals. The 120 years uh, could refer to a lifespan. Uh, it seems the lifespan of man was reduced after the flood. But it may be also referring that God's uh, uh, grace is extended to a period of time for man until judgment. And even if that 120 years is a full lifespan, now I'm, I'm guessing there's probably very few of us who will, will ever reach 120. Uh, there are people that live to that age, actually, when my sister was out last weekend. Uh, we were talking about a mutual acquaintance that we knew, a minister. And they mentioned him, and I said, they said, well, he's still preaching. I, I think he was minister there at Valley View. And they said, well, he's still preaching. And, uh, and they said, matter of fact, his father still lives. And uh, he, he lives right close to where Dan and Darla's mom and dad live. They said, he's, I think he's 100 or 101 and uh, still drives. And... Uh, they said he's actually very mentally very sharp yet. And uh, he said, uh, they said when people ask him, you know, what to attribute his long life to, he said, well, if he knew, he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, 120 years would be definitely, you know, we think of 80, three score years and 10 as a lifespan perhaps. But, you know, if that's, if 120 is referring to a lifespan, could well be. If God doesn't bring judgment in our lives in our lifetime. Does that clear us? I don't think we can... We, it, there's still judgment after that lifetime. Okay? So the wicked can live for 120 years and not face judgment. Uh, even if God withholds His judgment for a lifetime, there is still judgment after that death, after that life. So even if sinners live to be 120 years and have a reprieve from God's judgment, that does not guarantee them a pardon at the end of their life. Also, verses 11 and 12, jumping ahead, I didn't, didn't read these uh, verses, but it says, verse 11, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his ways before the earth. God sees, God knows, what is taking place in our lives and the world in which we live. God today in our 21st century knows uh, what the climate level of iniquity is, if I can use those expressions. God knows what the climate level of iniquity is. And uh, how close is it to, to parallel to what it was in the days of Noah? How close is it? I don't know. God knows that. But I am confident as God looked down here in Genesis chapter 6 and saw that level of iniquity that he could no longer tolerate it, that he, as he looks in, in our world today, he knows exactly where that level is. And he, he knows you and I, as, as believers, desiring to live holy lives for uh, him, in, in glory to him, he knows how much we can tolerate and take. And the scriptures talk about, uh, unless those days would be sure that even the very elect would uh, be deceived. Um, so God, I'm trusting that in God's hands this morning and throughout the coming years ahead, we don't know to, you know, it seems like wickedness is abounding and growing faster and, a, and a, at a more rapid pace than we've ever seen. 
And I can't document that. But I do know that God's grace and God's keeping power is just as real as it was here in Genesis 6 for us today. And that's why I don't think we need to pull back or, or uh, uh, withdraw and uh, live in fear because we have one that is greater in us than that is in them. Well, that's a little bit of some of the background facts of, of what the world was like. I'd like to look at Noah. Again, some of the uh, facts about him. Noah was the, the tenth generation, it tells us, from Adam. So ten generations. And again, that lifespan was longer than we're traditionally uh, familiar with. He was the son of Lamech, the grandson of Methuselah, who was the oldest man that ever lived. Nine hundred, At least the oldest documented man that we know of that ever lived. 969 years. Noah was... Uh, Methuselah's uh, grandson. And I guess his story has, has a lot of intriguing uh, details about it, and that's, that's probably why we're, I'm fascinated with it. But in chapter uh, 5, verse 32, and this goes back before our last verse in chapter 5, it says, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Sham, Ham, and Japheth. So he was 500 years old when he fathered these three sons that actually went with him into the ark. Uh, I also had to wonder, did, were there other children in, uh, in, uh, in Noah's family? I, again, the Bible is silent on that. I always just assumed there were just the three sons, but I don't know. And that was another thing one of the, uh, one of the scholars brought out. They said, typically, uh, we have these three sons of Noah recorded, but typically, a lot of times uh, in the Bible and also other historical records, the daughters were not recorded. It just says many sons and daughters, or many son, lists of sons, and they'll say many daughters. And uh, so were there daughters in Noah's family? That I don't know. But uh, it just, uh, it's something we'll have to ask when we get to glory, I guess. But uh, he was 500 years old when he begat these three sons. A fact. Scripture very clearly tells us that. Also, thinking about Noah, in chapter 9, verse 28, it tells us that uh, he lived another 350 years after the flood. Chapter 9, verse 28 tells us there that... Uh, uh, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so you do the calculation there, and he was another 350 years beyond. But uh, it's also interesting to notice in chapter 9, verse 1, it tells us that Noah and his sons are given the same instructions that God, by God, that God had given to Adam and Eve. And it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And uh, that was the same instructions that God had given to Adam and Eve as he placed them in the garden. He said he's placed them there with that responsibility. Adam and Eve had somewhat the same response. I mean, pardon me, Noah had somewhat the same, Noah and his sons had somewhat the same responsibility as, as was given to Adam and Eve. Noah's life leading up to the flood event in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. I read those verses. Noah's life... Leading up uh, to the flood, he found grace. He was just. He was perfect. Walk with God, and I—that—that's a—that's a powerful testimony for to be said of anyone. That God, that testimony. He was—he was just. He was perfect. He walked with God, and I, you know, I—and I guess I never thought about it before. You know, we read about Enoch. God, Enoch was translated. He did not face the normal death of of a physical human being. It says because he walked with God, and he was not. Noah here did the same thing. He walked with God. So I often used to wonder that are we, are we, uh, are we missing it a little bit in our relationship with the Lord? I mean, if we were, if we were as devout as, as Enoch was, 
could we also not face death? We think of death as painful and parting and uh, the separation. Uh, Enoch just simply was not. Uh, but here Noah, and I guess this is a new this was a new thought to me, was that here Noah did the same thing. He walked with God, yet he still died the normal physical death of a human being. Uh, and I would say, this is my evaluation, it uses the same expression. Noah walked with God, Enoch walked with God. Um, why God decided to translate Enoch rather and not Noah, I don't know. But I would like to suggest that it probably was the same level of, of a relationship. And I think you and I can covet that same type of relationship, walking with God as Noah and Enoch had, and we can still face physical death with uh, confidence, without that uh, the apprehensions. At least I hope we can. <laughs> I have never faced death, you know, like right in front of me, and uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm unseasoned. I don't know. I've I've had family, fathers, mothers, sister. Uh, that's as close as it has come. But, you know, when it faces you personally, how does it impact you? I don't know. Noah's location before the ark and the flood. Um, I don't know. We're not told what he actually did. I, uh, we are told uh, after the flood that he was planted a vineyard. He was a husbandman. We sometimes use that as a general term as being a farmer. So was he a farmer before the flood? I don't know. We're not exactly sure. But uh, in any event, I believe he was a... Um, the Scriptures, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, tells us that as he was at 100 years in building the flood, and that's approximately how long it took him to build the, the ark. I said the flood. Uh, he was building the ark perhaps about 100 years it says he was the first recorded preacher that we have in the scripture. He was a preacher of righteousness. Second, uh, Peter refers to him in Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Um, so as Noah was going about his building of the ark, he also was testifying and preaching. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, uh, preaching for 100 years and uh, seemingly didn't have any success. At least it was just him and his family and wife, and that to me is successful enough, but shouldn't there have been others? I don't know. <laughs> uh, again, it comes down to choices. Uh, those people of that time made their choices, and uh, Noah was the preacher, and that was his responsibility. Another thing I need to, we need to be reminded of is that the sin nature did survive the flood. It did not eradicate the sin nature we turn to chapter 9, verse 2. We see Noah was drunken, and uh, he overindulged himself, and, uh, and uh, there was consequences there that were undesirable in his family. 1 Corinthians, I was reminded as I thought about that ex uh, event there in Noah's experience. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, in the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. First Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. Charity, I'll read verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. 
Charity of wanteth not itself is not puffed up. And then particularly verse 5, Charity doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easy to provoke, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in the iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And it would seem like Noah's sons rejoiced in the iniquity of their father and uh, his uh, drunkenness there. But had they indeed been... Um, true possessors of the love of God and the charity, the true charity experience that needs to take place in the child of God, I think there would have been compassion or uh, simply not rejoicing in that iniquity as it seems Ham did. Thirdly, looking at the ark, uh, that was God used Noah in this assignment, but it was God's design. This wasn't Noah's plan. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, we find that uh, gopher wood, make thee an ark of gopher wood, wood, verse 14. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. Window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Some interesting details. Now, mentions gopher wood. King James uh, uses that term. And today, we, we don't know anything about really gopher wood. Uh, there's no wood like that today. Some scholars would suggest that perhaps there may have been a, may have been a translation error. And I was doing some more reading, and I read through... Uh, I'll get to this just a little bit later. There's some types and shadows uh, here in, uh, in the uh, experience of the flood. And Dan Byler's book, Types and Shadows of the Cross, he says that gopher wood is, is um, it may be not used today or may be extinct today, but somewhere he found some information about gopher wood, and he said it's, it's a, it's, it was a wood in biblical times that had a very deep root in dry ground. I'm not here to uh, refute that one way or the other. But uh, the NIV does use, if you have an NIV translation there, it does use, uh, I think, uh, cypress wood rather in place of that. And that was what the, I think the Phoenicians used, who were great shipbuilders in their time, used cypress wood perhaps, and of course a very, very enduring wood. So I, I'm not exactly sure what took place there, whether it was actually gopher wood. Uh, Dan Byler and his types and shadows seem to think that gopher wood had some typology in it being uh, a type of Christ, where it talks about uh, in, in Isaiah uh, as, as a dry root out of a, a root out of a dry ground. Uh, certainly, no injustice done there, if that indeed is the case. But uh, the size, 450 feet long. Again, this size is approximate because there was some discrepancy on actually. There's two different cubit lengths used sometimes, anywhere from I think it was 15 to 18 inches, perhaps. So somewhere in that 450 foot long to 75 foot wide to 45 foot high. And uh, again, that dimension is given in cubits. Uh, but again, those ratios, 6 to 1, uh, are still used many times in shipbuilding today. Pitched inside and out, rooms, three stories, one door, and uh, a roof. We don't read about the, the covering here in chapter 6, but we find that when the flood ended, it says Noah uncovered the ark, and that's in chapter 9, I believe it is. And uh, so we get the impression that was probably some type of a temporary covering of a skins or, or some type of material that was removable. The length, I didn't mention the 100 years, that's in chapter 7, verse 11, says he was added for about 100 years. I think if you do the calculation there, 
um, from the time he started building to uh, the time the flood came. Well, looking at the flood or the catastrophe specifically, in chapter 7, verse 12, it tells us it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in addition, it tells us that the fountains of the great deep were broken up in uh, verse 11 particularly. Flood lasted about 150 days. In chapter 7, verse 24, we can get that calculation. The flood depth covered the mountains by approximately 20 feet. So the highest peak of the earth was covered by another 20 feet of water. And again, there are some who would suggest that the, this was a regional flood, not a global flood. I guess I would probably tend to disagree with that. I, I believe for the Lord to bring a flood that would encompass the whole earth is certainly not beyond his, his doing. Uh, he created it, why could he not flood it? Uh, some commentators seem to think that the population of the world had not... The flood was only as far as the population of the world had extended at that time, which to me, if they're saying it was 10 trillion, why it seems like it would have had to be all over the earth. How much, uh, and again, I don't know exactly uh, the post-flood experience, what, you know, how much the geographical uh, surface of the earth was changed by that. I think it definitely was affected. But uh, I'm not Ken Ham or any other archaeological authority on that. But uh, we do know, we are told in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, that there was total destruction. Notice verse 21, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the land and all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and fowls of the heaven and that were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So there was total destruction. And you know, I can't hardly grasp that. Total destruction. You know, I, we have a creek that runs down, I don't know what it's called, the Middle Fork, South Branch of the Middle Fork of the Zumbro River, or whatever it is. But anyway, uh, you know, that does flood occasionally. I, and on the worst occasion I can remember, it was when Arlen Geigles were here having meetings that year, and I think we estimated it was probably about 40 acres underwater, and that's discouraging. Uh, think of what the world looked like, totally submerged in, in water. Uh, you know, it, it, to me it would be depressing, but yet it was, it was in response to God's judgment on man because of their sin. Can I get a grasp of that? That's how terrible God used sin, and, and the, the extent that he went to, to bring judgment on that. They were in the ark. Total duration in the ark was approximately about one year. And uh, those dates can be taken from chapter 7, verse 11. And uh, it was 600 years, the second month when they entered. And uh, if you go to chapter 8, verses 13, 14, and 15, it says it was in the 601st year, second month, when God, in verse 16, when God called them again out of the ark. Chapter 8, verse 20 and 22, I want to remind you of this uh, as we think of the catastrophe, the flood. Chapter 8, verses 20, And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, The Lord said in his heart, 
thought that was interesting. I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now that's, uh, that's a farmer's promise right there. Seed time and harvest, that's what we, that's what we live by. And uh, God has promised that that will remain, and never again will he destroy the entire earth as we've seen here in our uh, account here in Genesis chapter 6. And in chapter 9, verses 11 through 17, uh, this is something for the children. How many of you have seen rainbows? You've seen rainbows in the sky already plenty of times. We, we look at them, and even as old as we are, we get, it's still impressive and, 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 and challenging to realize where and why that rainbow is there. Chapter 9, verses 11, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. We're perpetual generations this morning. We're all descendants of Noah, somewhere back through. We're perpetual generations. I do set my bow, pardon me, verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Scott, need to be reminded, says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, and I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. That rainbow is a reminder to us today. Well, I want to just briefly mention some of the types that we see in our uh, lesson here this morning. Noah is seen as a type of Christ. He was a channel of salvation. It was only because of his, his work through Noah. Uh, uh, Noah, pardon me, Noah is seen as a type of Christ only because of his work that there was any salvation experienced for him, his wife, and his sons and their wives. And he was chosen of God, as Christ was also chosen of God, and he, he responded in obedience. Noah responded in obedience, as Christ also responded in obedience. The ark is seen as a type of the New Testament church. Uh, there are some similarities. There is one door uh, into the ark here, just as there is one way to Christ. Jesus said, I am the door, uh, in John 10. And uh, he serves as the only access to God. Eight souls were on board that ark, and uh, eight is symbolic, the number eight is symbolic of the resurrection and the life that followed after that flood. And uh, so there's some symbolism there. Another thing is there all their needs were supplied in the ark, and this comes back to what we were talking about in the Sunday school lesson. All their needs were supplied in the ark. This morning, I believe, our, our needs are found in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, in, the, in the collective brotherhood, I believe, our needs should be supplied. That's where we need to find our support. And uh, we need to experience that. We need to trust that. And I believe it can be uh, uh, an experience that is, is bonding in the brotherhood. And we find that as our experience. 
Well, lastly, looking at some lessons here, I have four lessons that I think we can take home with us today. First of all, I want to remind you of the accountability. That's the, that's the bottom line. There's accountability for the way you and I live our lives. Number one, lessons. It matters more what God asks of me and my obedience than anything else in life. I need to realize that I'm accountable to God. It matters more what God asks of me and my obedience to that, my response to that, than anything else. You look at what uh, God asked Noah to do. And, you know, that was a task. Uh, God doesn't call qualified people, but he qualifies the people that he calls. And uh, to me, that's an encouragement. Uh, you know, man likes titles. Uh, Noah could have got wrapped up in some of the titles. Uh, he could have been Captain Noah. Uh, and maybe, maybe some of his cheers maybe called him that. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, were there ship captains before that? I don't know. But uh, he could have had some kind of a engineering degree, initials behind his name. You know, I don't know. But you know what God actually likes? God likes faith and obedience. And to me, that's the most important part. And that's the way that Noah responded. He responded in faith and obedience to what God asked of him. And uh, to me, that's a challenge. It matters more what God asks of me and my obedience and response to that than anything else in life. Really anything else. Noah didn't let his, his uh, culture. He didn't let his, those that were naysayers. He didn't let his other family, perhaps, in-laws, outlaws, whatever you want to call them, detract him from his focus. He was going to build this ark because God had commissioned him to build that ark. And that was his, full, that was his focus. That was his goal. And we were talking about goals this morning. Uh, do we have goals? Secondly, God was the supplier. He, he designed it. He gave Noah the specific directions, the size. He also told him the wood. Uh, he told him what animals to bring in. You know, if God asks us to do a task, I believe we need to trust him to supply the material. Okay? But we need to do the work. Noah still had to do some, use some elbow grease, as we use the expression sometimes. And I'm a farmer, so I, I was thinking about this task. And it does seem there was a change in relation to the, is it chapter 9 there, I think, after they came out of the ark. Yeah, chapter 9. It seems like there was a difference in the relationship in the animal kingdom, the relationship between man and the animal kingdom. Because there in chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. It seems like there may have been a different level of, of relationship. But as a farmer, I had to wonder, what, what did the two bovines look like that Noah took on the ark? Were they black and white? Were they brown and white? I don't know. It's really immaterial. But uh, God was, uh, in, in a very miraculous way, preserved. He did not recreate uh, the animal kingdom. It was through the, faithful, the faithfulness of Noah. So today as a farmer, I have Noah to thank that we've got, and all the rest of you have cows to milk to drink, cows to milk. And, uh, you know, God could have created the ark. He could have recreated the animals. He could. But he wanted to use Noah. God wants to use us today. God wants to use every one of us today in building his kingdom. We're not building an ark per se as Noah was, but yet we're building the church of Jesus Christ. And he wants to use us. And I appreciate what Dennis said the other last Wednesday evening. You know, there's, that, that's, that's a powerful testimony as, God, as the world looks in and sees a group of people that are working together.
And, uh, you know, that should be our, our greatest testimony here in the church today as we work together in toward a common goal. How important are you this morning? You're important enough that God wants to use you in building His kingdom. The third point, um, you know, you need to get into the ark. That sounds so simple, almost, but it's a point. You need to get into the ark. It wouldn't have made one bit of difference if Noah would have built that ark and then stood outside and never got in. You need to get into the ark. This morning, I'd like to invite you that the gangplank is down, the door is open yet today, and safety is in the ark, the church of Jesus Christ. That needs to be our experience. We need to be in the ark. We need to be there if we're going to be saved. Fourth point, in chapter 8, verse 1, it tells me, I, that hit me really hard as I read that. Again, that's another one of God's, I don't think of God as forgetting. Is there a verse that says God doesn't forget? Well, he does forget our sins. But you know, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle, and all the cattle, I thought that was impressive. He remembered all the cattle that was in, with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assaged, and the fountains also of the deep, and the windows of the heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth. But God remembered Noah. Uh, had he forgot about him before? Were they floating around there for them almost that whole year? Or 150 days, whatever the flood was lasting? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm thinking we, I, I think of it in, in, from a human perspective. You know, sometimes when I forget th- something and I all of a sudden remember it, it kind of shocks me to reality. Well, I think God knew it was there. God is greater than any of us, any human mind. But it's, it's, it's man's way of expressing it so that we can understand it. God remembered. To me, that's an encouragement. God remembered Noah. And then in response to that, in chapter 8, verse 20, and I read those verses, when Noah exited the ark, it says then that Noah built an altar. The first thing he did, got off that ark, he built an altar. And so Noah remembered God. And the challenge I want to leave with you this morning is, God has remembered you. He has provided a channel of salvation. How much do I remember Him? How, much, how often am I remembering His claim upon my life? How often am I asking Him, what do you want me to do today? Uh, how am I supposed to do this? Ask Him for specific directions. God remembered Noah. God remembers you. Do I remember Him? Is a question and challenge I want to leave with you. Would have my response been, uh, getting off that ark, building an altar to Him, praising glory to God and for the salvation that we experienced from that year of floating in the ark, or it wasn't quite a whole year of floating. They were sitting on Mount Ararat part of the time until the earth dried up. But, uh, you know, that's a challenge. Uh, my thoughts probably from a human perspective could have been said, okay, where are we going? Was the food all by that time in the ark? I don't know. God had directed them to take enough of food along, and maybe it was down to the last food, last bale of hay and the last bucket of corn and the last jar of food. I don't know. <laughs> That's just my human imagination. But Noah said, the first thing he did, he started sacrificing animals. He could have hung on to them seven animals. God had told him to bring seven clean of the clean animals so that he could sacrifice. God was looking ahead and Noah followed through in obedience. Noah could have said, now wait a minute here. Is there going to be enough food two weeks down the road, a year down the road, a month down the road? But he, in obedience, sacrificed those animals on the altar for God's glory.